You're listening to The Fabric Podcast. Now in our final weeks, with Greg Meyer at the helm of The Fabric Ship, we're calling this conversation The Gospel According to Greg. Yes, pleasantly heretical, but there have been countless things that Greg has helped Fabric hold on to over the years, and we could all use the reminder sometimes. So without further ado, here's Greg. We are on the second week of The Gospel According to Greg. That might sound terribly audacious if you think about gospel like, well, the gospel is the truth, right? So now, I mean, that's not what the word means. So the word actually gospel comes from the word in Greek, euangelio, which means good news. And so this is like, yeah, you know what, what's some good news from Greg? We could all use some good news, right? And I think the world of spirituality and church and all that kind of stuff could definitely use some good news. Um, So that's a little bit what I want to talk about today. And today, what I want to talk about, I think, is definitely good news. God doesn't play games. You've probably heard me say this, or Melissa say it, or Heidi say it, or somebody say it a hundred times, but like, I want to unpack what is that really all about, because it's actually really, really an important insight in thinking about what what does it mean, and why are we a three-stranded community, you know, people that try to weave their lives with their deepest self with others, including all things, and then with that third strand, you know, which is that word I just used, God. And I really have to start out with that, too, that for a lot of people, the word God just is fine. Like, I get God, that's fine. A lot of people, I would say, maybe almost a majority of the population in our country has a pretty big problem with it. It's complicated, right? But it's, uh, a lot of it has to do with how they see other people seeing God. In other words, what they feel like when someone says God, what they think those people are referring to, they just like can't buy that, Right. So I don't know, you know, what, what, what is God to you? Is it just like this sense of all things that are there? Is it uh, the divine? Is it at the higher power? Is it, uh, you know, in the Bible, the name of God is Yahweh. When, when, you see, when you read the Lord in the Bible, that's a translation from Yahweh, which was the name that God revealed of God's self in Exodus 3, which means, in Yahweh, that's Hebrew, in English it means I am who I am. It's kind of like, it's sort of a non-name name. Like, I, I simply am what I am. I mean, that's it. I mean, which seems to have a little bit more integrity. So getting that God off of the, you know, throne up on the clouds, looking down on us, making rules is sort of an important thing to do. So God, or whatever word you want to stick in there, it's totally up to you. Uh, God doesn't play games. What does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, if some of the games that I think a lot of us assume that God plays or we hear is that, well, God sets all these arbitrary rules that we're supposed to follow. Some of God's God and God gets us up the rules and those are the rules and we got to play by them, right? Um, a lot of what this game playing God is is unreasonable expectations. God makes us human beings and, which are imperfect and limited and finite and all that stuff and then expects us to be perfect or we're in trouble. You know, if you didn't do it right, if you didn't believe right, if you didn't do whatever right, then you have eternal consequences. I mean, I don't know, it seems like a game. That game-playing God seems to act from anger a lot of times, at least in the stories that we get in this book. Hmm, it doesn't seem terribly mature. Did I say that? No. No lightning bolts so far, guys. We're clear. Um, And another aspect of this game-playing God that I think a lot of us experience, grow up with, hear about, is that God plays favorites. You know, it's Jacob over Esau, Israel over the Egyptians, it's Christians, maybe even Christians of a certain denomination over other Christians and certainly non-Christians and stuff like that. You know, God plays favorites. Some people, you know, where you're lucky enough to be born in a place where you turn out to be a Christian or not, seems like, well, that was more of a roulette thing than, you know, a choice or anything divine in all that. 
And then there's this idea of God maybe being sort of capricious. Like, i got something really serious going on in my life, and sometimes God shows up and helps. Sometimes God heals, and sometimes God doesn't. You know, did I not pray right? Did I not do enough? Or did I just not get God's attention? Or did God care or not care? I mean, I know, you know, sort of a game a game-playing sort of position to have. The biggest one, and I think all these kind of point to, is that uh, God creates us as human beings. It's pretty amazing things. I mean, we're, we're capable of some pretty amazing stuff. You've got a brain that can do amazing things and figure so many things out, and it's really not there for you to use. It's actually your brain is a temptation for you to do what you think is right rather than what God told you. So your brain is really not a tool, it's a test. Everybody agree? No, I mean, seriously. Uh, I, I think that's a, lot of, that's a lot of dangerous stuff in all that. Um, because of that notion, that way of understanding God, a lot of people, and certainly a growing part of our population, have simply dismissed the whole idea of God, the whole discussion, the whole religious, spiritual thing out. They just said, no, it's just plain silly. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Um, or, on the other hand, there's another position about this game-playing God, and people just say, well, pff, I mean, yeah, I don't really like it. Maybe it doesn't make sense, but that's God. I mean, God is what God is, and so if God decides to run the world that way, then God can run the world that way. I mean, what am I to do? I can't change that. That's what it says God does, so that's what God does. I don't know. I mean, that seems to be such a reduced version of God that, you know, that is just that arbitrary and does all those things and chooses to do that. And, and for me to simply accept that and say, it doesn't make any sense, but God's what God is, and so therefore that's what it is. And, you know, I just don't think that works. When we have that reduced sense of God, I mean, it's really not a God that's worthy of believing or trusting or following. So how does this happen? How, how do we end up in that kind of a position with that kind of relationship with God? Because my position is, that whole train of thought, everything I kind of walked you through, maybe sounds kind of familiar to you, but it's just like all wrong questions, right? I mean, God doesn't play games. But if we have this idea that maybe God does, then we end up with a lot of those, stuck in a lot of those corners that I just talked to you. Well, anyway, there's a lot of reasons, I think, where we end up that way. Um, but this is a big one that I want to talk you through for a minute. And I've walked many of you through this at different times, um, but I don't think I've really talked about this for a long time. And I, I'd just like to share it with you. And um, this is what I call gap theology, okay? And, yeah, not the retailer. Um, it's it's a, kind of a theology. Of, it's a, it's what, how we end up with what I would call a God of the gaps, right? So this is my gap theology. And this is how it works. First of all, you've got the universe. We'll just assume, like, inside my arms is all things, right? Everything that exists in way exists, and everything about it is all within my arms. Or if you're looking at the screen on that screen, okay? And that's a lot, right? And if you think about human beings a long, long, long time ago, okay, thousands of years ago, they had a little circle inside of all of that of the stuff that they knew and understand and could control, right? That was the known. But the known was really little and diminished by the unknown. And so what do you do with all that unknown? Well, that's where God exists, right? God is the unknown. And God is in control of that. How does the unknown work? Well, that's God's space. God does all that sort of stuff, okay? Anyway, uh, if you look back at, uh, well, you know, ancient records of thousands of years ago, you see people kind of operating with that sort of thing. The thing is that as, as we go along, we start learning more and more, and the known expands. You know, we, 
we uh, know why the seasons change. We know uh, how birds migrate. We know how it is that we get sick, what causes sicknesses, and things like that. And our known expands, and the unknown then necessarily, what, decreases, right? And so, what decreases as the known increases? God. We don't need God as much. God's role is smaller because we know and can control and understand so much more of our world. And so God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And in fact, it keeps going. And we not only you know, understand about the seasons, but we understand. And we not only understand about diseases, but we understand that there are molecules. And inside of molecules are atoms. And we understand what's inside of atoms and how they begin to work. And while we know we don't know everything, there's, in fact, we know there's so much more we don't know. At the same time, we realize it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of whacking away at these things. And one by one, we can begin to figure these things out. And God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And pretty soon, we come to the logical conclusion that there is no such thing as God. God is simply a placeholder for the unknown. And the unknown is simply waiting to be conquered by us. I would say most people, at least in our society, operate with this gap theology. This is how they understand the world. This is how they understand God. They may not realize it. They may not think about it that way, but they do. They rely on themselves for everything that they can control and understand and so on. I figure these things out and I'll do these things. When I get to the unknown, when I get to the place where I feel out of control, where things are uncertain, then I turn to God. And so we have two lives. We got our Sunday morning life. We got our other life. We've got our um, place where we are humble and um, and we turn to those beyond us, and we got to have those places where, no, I can handle this. And God simply becomes, what? A filler of the gaps. Filler of the gaps. Now, um, that's, that's a problem, because a God that is like that, one, it just, you know, if, if God is simply a placeholder, then why would you really trust? Why would you really, why would that be worthy of our believing in, trusting in, following? Because it doesn't really even exist. Now, you can see whether, you know, that's something that you say, yeah, that kind of sounds maybe even the way I think about it sometimes. Let myself slip into that sometimes. Uh, another way of understanding the same characteristic is a, another fabricism that we say quite a bit. And uh, it ha has to do with this idea of, like, the role that God plays in my spirituality or in my, um, you know, bigger-than-self life, even in my three-stranded life and how much we need to acknowledge that third strand, that, that God strand, right? Like, when you pray, there's maybe a right way to pray, and you need to have the right name for God. And maybe you really better say, you know, God pretty often. Or, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, Jesus goes to God and says, yeah, I'm feeling kind of down. I checked in on one of the church services, and they only mentioned my name three or four times. I'm kind of feeling like people are, you know, <laughs> no, no. So the fabricism is, God doesn't need credit. Jesus doesn't want credit. God, Jesus, however you want to think about these things, they are not insecure. They are not um, ego-driven, relying on us, building up, building them up, making them feel important. All right, it just that's a human construct. That's something we project from ourselves, right? Because I feel that way if I find out you go home and have roast preacher at dinner, you know. But God doesn't need credit. Jesus doesn't want credit. God doesn't rely on you making him or her or it or whatever God is feel good about him, her, or itself. Right? 
God simply is. Now, what, what does God want? I mean, if you want to think about it that way, that's maybe an overly instrumental way of doing it, but you know, as people, we kind of have to think in these sorts of ways. This is what our God boxes look like. What does God want? What does Jesus want? I mean, God, Jesus, they want us to be whole. They want us to see ourselves as part of all things, not apart from everything else. They want us to be you know, fulfilled. They want us to do that. God is not from what, this is it, right? Gospel according to Greg. God is not necessarily interested in making you happy or rich. God is interested in your being fulfilled and purposeful, which lead to a whole different way of being happy and being wealthy, right? A different kind, one that can't be robbed by circumstances, the positives, the negatives, the how much or not enough sort of questions, um, but they can live independently of that. So, yes, gospel according to Greg, how I see this, kind of what you've been hearing from me for 17 years. But, but I really think this isn't my invention. I mean, I've spent a long time with this book, and I really see the big themes running through the Bible reinforcing what I'm trying to tell you. That, that's really what the Bible is trying to get at. And I'd like to um, help us see that by looking at one story in the Bible. It's often referred to as the Transfiguration Anybody kind of vaguely here? Yeah, all fans of it. Okay, so the transfiguration story of Jesus, it's told in two of the Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all wrote their own versions of the life of Jesus, and they're all recorded side by side. They're all different. They don't agree on things, and um, the people who put the Bible together weren't bothered by that. So let's just have all of it there, okay? But Mark's Gospel, Mark's uh, story of the life of Jesus, puts this story, story of the transfiguration, right in the middle of his book. It's clearly a watershed story. It's a tra the transition story from part one to part two in a lot of ways. And I think it's a really good illustration of what we're talking about. And I think the fact that Mark put it there says like, yeah, this is a pivotal understanding, right? Let's hold on to this. So let me just read this, the story first. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. They were kind of the three primo disciples, followers of Jesus. And he led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, meaning he was changed. And the change is explained. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses. Elijah being sort of the quintessential prophet from the Old Testament, dead for a thousand years almost. Um, Moses having been the bringer of the law. He's the one who took Israel out of Egypt, led him through the Exodus, was the teacher for 40 years, delivered the Ten Commandments, all that sort of stuff, right? So what do they represent? The law and the prophets, right? So Jesus met with uh, Elijah and Moses, law and the prophets, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, teacher, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Then I love this next line. He did not know what to say because he was terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Translation, shut up and listen. You don't know what you're talking about? Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Then the next line, as we go into the next story, as they were coming down the mountain, dum, dum, dum. now, a lot of stuff going on there. The mountaintop experience, you know, Elijah and Moses both had those. Mountaintop experience is important. Um, Jesus turning dazzling white, talking with two people that were 
dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. That, you don't have stories like this in the New Testament, okay? This is really singular. This really stands out. There's all kinds of bizarre things going on. Peter wanting, you know, having Peter, James, and John, Peter wanting to build these three tents, three dwellings, whatever, kind of temples for them to memorialize this forever. And, and <laughs> you know, the commentary saying he had no idea what he was talking about and um, all that happening. But you know what I think the most... Um, important phrase in the story is you probably didn't even hear it. You probably didn't even notice it. And it's the one I want to talk about. It's the very first word in the story. What were the first words? Six days later. Why six days later? This kind of stuff, it's so easy to read over. Six days. What, six, why six days later? There's no marking of anything. All the stuff that was coming before this was not measured in what day it was or how many days or anything. There were just events after events after events after events. And then all of a sudden, this story, quintessential, um, a turning point to the whole gospel, starts six days later. We don't know what six days before was. We don't know what day of the week this is. Six days later. Well, if you've been around Hebrew stuff, numbers mean everything, right? That isn't the number of days it's just a number, a number, a very important number, six. What is six? You know what seven is? Seven is the number of completion. Three is the number of the deity. Four is the number of the earth. According to Hebrew numerology, you add them together, you get seven. But when you have six, something's missing. It's incomplete. It's not done. It's not right yet. Six days later, this happened. Now, this story is not only in the middle of Mark's gospel, but he wants to make sure we get all the right clues. So he tells a couple of stories beforehand. If you turn the page back one, at least in my Bible, it's one page back, uh, and look at chapter 8, okay? And there are two stories here. I want to just share these with you really fast. So, so the disciples are, there's all kinds of stuff going and coming. I mean, we, we honestly could spend a long, long time on all this. But I want to hit just the, the highlights here. So the disciples are with Jesus, and they're having this talk about, they forgot to bring bread along, right? So, like, nothing to eat. And there's all stuff going on. And then Jesus says, this is verse 17, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? And he asked them, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, right, the feeding of the 5,000, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did they collect? And they said to him, 12. Well, what's 12? Three times four, right? I mean, it wasn't 12, it was three times four, which is the number of God times the number of people. It's, again, a great poll. 12, of, 12 disciples, um, 12 um, tribes of Israel. I mean, it's just like it's the right number, right? That was the right amount. But it's three and four, right? And then he, go, he goes on and says, okay, so that was, yeah, five baskets for the 5,000, 12. And then, then there were seven loaves for the 4,000. How many baskets full of pieces did you collect? And they said to him, Seven. Why does he ask that? Then he said to them, Do you not understand? Don't you see? Don't you see? And I'd be willing to bet they all went, No. <laughs> but we're supposed to see. Because he's talking about something that's coming, right? Then there's the next story. They come to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch them. He took, out, he took the blind man by the hand and led them out of the village. And, and when he had put saliva on his eyes, which is something we all do, 
um, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? Anybody know what happens? He says, yeah, I can see, but people look like trees walking around. Like it's, I, I can see, but it's not working. That was attempt number one. Attempt number two. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, it's easy to read these stories as well as just Jesus doing some miracles. No, 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 no. I mean, maybe it's a miracle. Maybe it's proving the power of God, power of Jesus, stuff like that. But that isn't the point. The point is, at least he did it one time, and it, that wasn't the real thing. And then there's another time, and it was the real thing, right? And so then we get to the transfiguration, right? Six days later, Jesus goes on the mountain. He meets with Elijah and Moses. I mean, this is glory. He's transfigured like, wow, Jesus is so cool. Look who he is. This must be the Son of God. We better build booths. We better immortalize this. We better set this in stone. This should be this way forever because this is what it's all about. And the Bible says they didn't know what they were talking about. And what really happens? I mean, Jesus, this all happens. And what is Jesus' response to them? Let's go down the hill and get to work. This is where we belong. And those next stories happen. And what happens after that transfiguration. The mountaintop was great, but it wasn't about the mountaintop. It wasn't about Moses. It wasn't about Elijah. It isn't about who Jesus is. It's about what Jesus does. All right? That's what this attorney tells us. It's about connection. It's about wovenness. It's about being part of life together. Uh, some, well, John chapter 10, I've often said this is Jesus' personal mission statement, which I know they didn't have 2,000 years ago. But if he did, I think this would be it. Where he said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. He did not say, I have come that you might have rules and that you'd follow them whether they make sense or not. I have come that you might have life. I have come that you might be connected, that your lives might be woven together, that you might see yourself as part of all things. That's it. It isn't about me. It's about what I'm helping you become. So the transfiguration isn't about what happened on the sixth day. It's all about the seventh day. That's why those stories. It isn't about the first attempt. It's about what happens after it. It isn't about the number six. It's about the number seven. Mark made sure that we understood that that number seven, that three plus four, was what it's all about. And it's day seven that matters. And what happened on the seventh day? The love of God is acted out. The strands are woven. People's lives are changed. People are connected. People understand who they are in a world of God. So back to the God of the gap. God isn't big. God just is. I mean, big would mean comparison. There isn't a comparison. There just is. Everything is God. God is everywhere, and anyway. So when we talk about this, when we start thinking about it this way, then we realize another thing that we talk a lot about is having a God, our God box and not having too small of a God box, right? Your God box is like how you perceive, understand who God is, how God works, and everything, all the, all the experiences, all the ideas, all the notions, all the whatever you've got, you've got in your God box. And 
that's fine. You need one because you have to have a way to think about God. You have to have a way about talking about what God is and stuff like that. It's your own, your own language, everything. Um, but the idea is to realize that, well, I, this is my God box. And this is what I'm operating with, but it's inadequate. I've got to keep changing. I've got to keep growing it. But the point isn't the size of your God box, okay? That's what you have to realize. It isn't about how big your God box is. I mean, that becomes, well, my God box is bigger than yours. You know, size doesn't matter. Um, but what is it about? It's about the fact that your God box is big enough to include what's really going on. Your God box is big enough for who you actually are and who you actually might be becoming. Your God box is big enough to include life and those people that you're in relationships. Your God box is big enough to start including all the stuff that's happening in the world, the stuff that looks like it's spiritual and the stuff that doesn't look like it's spiritual. But it's all part of the same package. There isn't the, you know, God and not God. There isn't sacred and secular. It's all part of the same thing. So why am I telling you this? What do we do here as fabric but try to see ourselves as being part of all things? I, I think that's what it is. We're a check for each other and for our world to start seeing ourselves as big as possible and as connected as possible to all things. Not to be responsible for it all, not to think that you can change it, not to think you can be perfect about it, but to know that we're one, that we're a part of this. It's all about relationships. It's you and your, whatever it is in this world, your sister and your brother, not an other. There are no others. A game-playing God separates us from ourselves and from one another. And it happens because we're trying to satisfy this arbitrary, capricious, rule-setting, power God rather than living authentically according to where we feel we are being led in this world. And the same thing for God. God, too, cannot be other. God needs to be brother, sister, aunt, uncle, mother, father, neighbor. Yeah, I know. God is ultimately inconceivable. We can't figure it out. We can't think it. It's a thought beyond ourselves. That's why we need our God boxes. God is unfathomable. God is ungraspable. But, but I, I believe God is also innately familiar because you, you were born woven together with all that is. And life has a tendency to make us think we're on our own and we're separated from us, but it's in us. You are part of all things. We are all part of that same fabric. It feels familiar. It feels like home. If, you know, God is either whole and God is a unity and God is one or it isn't God at all. And when all is one, there is no other. That's just how it goes. The Hebrews knew this early on. The great commandment, the very, very beginning of the great commandment established in the very earliest days of the people of Israel was what they call the Shema, which is the word that means here. It's a, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is your God. Yahweh is one. That's it. Their whole creed, the fundamental of their belief is that it is all one. We need to carry that away. Something, you know, that I've um, um, really experienced in my life that I think is really true is this. And just take in these words. You cannot look deeply into God, into your vision of God, into your God box, wherever it might be. You cannot look deeply into God without seeing your neighbor.
You do not look at God and end up on Mount Olympus. You do not look at God and just end up in some holy, empty space. You look deeply into God, and I think you're going to find that you end up seeing your neighbor. Test that out. Likewise, you cannot look deeply into the eyes of your neighbor, whether you like them or don't like them, whether you know them or don't know them. You cannot look deeply into the eyes of your neighbor without seeing God. Don't we learn that from that story of the transfiguration? Don't you think that is what it was trying to tell us? The Bible, too, you know, doesn't want credit. It doesn't want to be a means to itself. You don't learn from the Bible by looking at it. You, look, you learn from the Bible by looking through it. The Bible is a lens. It's a lens to be seen through to the rest of the world, to our truer selves, to other people. To, uh, to the world around us. The Bible, just repeat that, the Bible isn't sacred. That means the Bible isn't holy, like transcendent. The Bible isn't something that we stand before with awe, saying there, is, there are millennia's worth of experience of people struggling to understand who God is contained within this. The Bible doesn't stand apart for us. It isn't sacred when we look at it. It becomes sacred when we look through it. So likewise, the Word of God, which we often equate with the Bible, I would hope in many ways this is the Word of God when we look through it, not at it, all right? But it isn't it. I mean, God is too big. God is so big. God is so much all things that there is nowhere that God is hidden. God is too bright. It shines too brightly to not shine through every nook and cranny in this universe. There is nowhere where God is not present and cannot be found. We have been together many, many, many weeks. For some of us, just a few, maybe for you, this is your first time to be with us. But we have come together to try to make sense of our lives and our world. And why? Because there is a lot of hurt and there is a lot of pain out there. You know it. If you sit back and look at your own life, you feel it there. We look around the world and it just seems overwhelming. We think of the people within our own community who are at some very important points with their health, their relationships, with their hopes, with their livelihood. I sense that we are either part of the healing or the hurting of this world. There is no neutral position to be silent and to not try to speak out, to act, to be part of the healing leaves us simply part of the problem, part of what lets hurt roll over us. Let's be part of the healing. The good shines. The seventh day comes. It is always with us and it is everywhere. Learn to see it. Learn to practice it. Learn to share it. Learn to be it. God does not play games. God is here for you, for all of us, for this world. Whatever God is, it's love and nothing else. So let's not play games with either. Let's be fabric and let's do that together. I need it 
You need it. Our friends, our family need it. And I think our world needs it. So may it be so. Thanks for listening. May this simply be the start of the conversation. Reach out if you want help connecting with a group virtually or in the Twin Cities and tag at Fabric MPLS with your own thoughts on social media. You can also stay up to date and find other resources on our website, fabricmpls.com.